Scots Whiskey Explorers, a podcast where we discuss everything there is to discuss about whiskey. I'm Peter, and I'll be joined by Stuart in each episode, where we will ask the questions and seek out the answers that are prompted by a love of whiskey. If you want to know more about how we came to be making this podcast, please have a listen to the Season 1 trailer. In Season 1, we'll be focusing on the fundamentals of single malt Scots whisky production. Everything from barley to fermentation to maturation will be examined and explored in exhaustive detail. If you'd like to know more about Scots Whisky Explorers, or if you'd like to get in touch, leave comments or suggestions, please go to www.scotswhiskeyexplorers.com and you can find us on Twitter at WhiskeyScots. Thank you for listening to Scots Whisky Explorers. We hope you enjoy it. Now, please sit back, relax, pour yourself a jam and enjoy our conversation about fermentation. So, Stuart, how are you doing? Hey, Peter. Yeah, I'm great, man. I'm great. Uh, Sunday afternoon, yeah. chatting, yeah, about, chatting about whiskey. Uh, what's uh, what's not to like if we're, um, we're going to dive in and get up to our elbows and all of that yeast? Yeah, and well, we're moving on at a pace, aren't we? We've, we've, we're now well inside the distillery. We are. We are. We've got our... Our mash going, and we've got our sugary liquid ready, and now we're about to to add the third and last ingredient. Mm. The well, I, 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 I would, I would, I would maybe challenge you on that because I, oh. I, I know that um, you know, uh, barley, water, yeast—that's the kind of the three constituent parts. Yeah, I've seen recently. Uh, another little diagram and someone said barley water yeast and oak okay yeah uh yeah i would i would, I would go with that but the one i was thinking about this during the week the one thing that's um quite often maybe it's it's tacitly understood but no one ever really kind of mentioned it too much i think one of the biggest ingredients we have to keep in mind is time yeah and and i suppose if i'm expertise oh yeah well there's the, the hands of all the men and women that, that make it yeah and like we were mentioning earlier i was struck by how in coming to this particular topic which perhaps in my own conceit was thinking oh this this might be slightly more straightforward because we've argued that up to now that oh there's a matrix going on there are many interacting factors have an influence both at the time and later in the process and actually i was hoisted on my own petard because i actually i have found the complexities involved in what seemed apparently straightforward process of making beer to be quite to be messing with my head along the process because we've gone from well it's not a case of just adding yeast to the sugary liquid there's all sorts of other possibilities, both in terms of what that is fermented in, as well as a lot of processes around length of time, around temperature, and even down to the point of which particular yeast strain you use that yeah. may or may or may not have an influence <laughs> on flavour. But that those influences both again both happen in and of themselves at, at the time in the fermentation process. 
but will have an influence then on the final distilled spirit. And yeah. To my poor wee brain was was steaming up at, at at some points just trying to get my head around the level of complexity. And like I say, I maybe had to bitten off a little bit more than I could do, thinking, oh, this will be straightforward. When in actual fact, it's become a metaphor again. Like there are so many interacting factors that uh, that is hard, that, that it moves away again. We're beginning to mix up art, science, and, and something a little bit in between, some kind of form of alchemy. Yeah. Of, of magic that that's clearly a skill set of the folk who are making these this this spirit are have 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 to be uh, embedded and really to make sense of all of the complexity that we're beginning to uncover. Yeah, and I think it's worth pointing or keeping in mind and thinking about as I was as I was reading through doing as much reading as I could about the fermentation process. Now and again, as you're reading stuff, they would, they, whatever book you were reading, and I've, I need to mention a couple of books because there's, there's some some books that I've been using all the way through our episodes that have been absolutely astonishingly detailed in the the depth and the breadth of information that they're providing through the, through the, those books. The authors are just divulging so much information; it's amazing. But every now and again, there'd be a wee sentence saying. Technical chat, technical chat, lots of chemical chat, and we're still not really sure why this happens. Yeah. Further investigation is required to really get to the bottom of what's going on in this process because we don't quite understand it. So the, I think the, the, the alchemy thing is is absolutely it's a, a great way of summing it up, really. Yeah, I, I, I too, I think I had that experience reading in particular Philip Hill's book, uh, Appreciating Whiskey, which is very detailed in the chemical processes and you know, enough to be certainly beyond any understanding I have in, t- in terms of chemistry. Mm-hmm. But then somewhere along the line saying, uh, but that's as far as I can take it because actually to go into any more depth is beyond the scope of this book. What? <laughs> I'm already lost. You mean there's more? <laughs> but I think, well, let's be... Maybe it's about retrieving the magic that brought us to this in the first instance. Is there is that almost that al- alchemy going on that mm. makes us wonder about the magic that appears mm. in the glass? And that well, hopefully we can still preserve that that magic. Well, I think if it's if the concept of fermentation and the activity of fermentation has been around for as long as it appears to have been, I was reading that there was. Um, diagrams and archaeological evidence um, from ancient Egypt that that brewing and bread making was around 4,000 years ago. That's testament to a whole bunch of things, really. <laughs> how how it, it, bring, it brings to mind a quote I, I, uh, from a book I read, um, uh, Yuval, Har- what's his name? Yuval... You haven't read Homo Sapiens, have you? No. So it's Yuval Noah. I'll need to go and get it and get his name right. But he was talking about the cultivation of wheat. And he was saying whenever he was researching wheat, he would come across the, the phrase that man 
domesticated wheat. And he said, actually, if you look at it, it's the other way around. Wheat <laughs> domesticated us. Because as soon yeah. as we started growing wheat, that's the beginning of agriculture and the, 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 the decline of the nomadic lifestyle. So the same kind of thing could maybe be said about yeast. You know, it's, yeast is one of the uh, products that has been responsible in the domestication of humans. Yeah. I was just trying to help you out there, Stuart, see if I could find this Yeovil guy while you're, while you're doing your Oh, yeah, chat. yeah, yeah. Well done. But Thank you. I couldn't find him quite so quickly as that. He'll be, he'll be, he's up there somewhere. But that's, that's a nice philosophical point, isn't it? That the interaction between us and what we do, mm. it's not, it's not some notion of us mastering our environment, but actually that process in and of itself has an influence on us as people. Because like you're saying, if we were going to grow wheat, we've got to, we've got to hang about and wait for it to grow. And then, and so therefore, the, the nomadic process, or that nomadic lifestyle, then is is different. becomes different because you got to, you got you got to settle down, maybe. Yeah, Yuval Noah Harari, is a fellow's name, and uh, thoroughly recommend *Sapiens: A Brief History of Humankind* to anyone that's interested in that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but just talking about the the you know the um, the historical aspects of it, I was reading. Uh, Gavin D. Smith's A to Z of Whiskey, and he's pointing out he's got some good kind of entomological, lexicographical, historical points to make about the where the word comes from, and he's he's uh, researched it back to around about fourteen hundreds, where the, the he's found uh, the the verb uh, fermentum was first kind of recorded way back then. Um, and then around about 1660, it's, um, the word fermentation was used figuratively to, to mean excited by emotion. And he gives a quote from some um, historical script. A young man in the highest fermentation of his youthful lusts. <laughs> All that frothing away. <laughs> wow. uh, so, okay. Well, that tends to make a bad joke there or you'd end up with a yeast infection but... <laughs> I might edit that out <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think you should <laughs> now, well also be, before we get any more complicated should we set out or should I set out what is it that was, that's going on here what are we brewing so, what, we, what we try to do right, so we've got a sugary liquid that we've made already through the mashing process mm. And we're storing that in a big fermenting vessel. For whiskey purposes, that's called a washback. Yeah. We're going to add yeast to the sugary liquid. The yeast is going to feed on those sugars. And then but the process and in the process of that, it's going to make alcohol and carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. And after a period of time, then it would be what we would recognise as as a strong beer, maybe somewhere between seven and ten percent, and that would then be collected again for distillation into making whiskey. That sounds really simple and straightforward, doesn't it? And that that's where we both got tripped up because as ever, 
there's a ten there's tensions, disputes about chosen methods and the all the arguments are they're often arguments that are constructed around particular arguments or particular ways of doing things, should say. Yeah. So at each point here, we've got some form of contestation and some sort of detail to add. So as ever, that that that's those questions we've we've asked ourselves over the years of like how how did we get to this point? And we're we're in a wee bit deeper now. We're in here with the with the yeast. I kind of started off from the point of saying to myself, well, what is yeast? What is it? I've read in a number of a number of articles and publications it's referred to as a plant, but digging a bit deeper, it's not quite the case. It's a single celled organism akin very much to uh, fungus. And yeah, in, and, in, and in the in that algae family right round there so taxonomically it's um yeah it seemed to be quite hard to pin down i think it took several generations of scientific endeavor before they they kind of pinned it down and said no it's we're 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 in the realm of the fungi here i think yeah and i'll have a i'll have a go because you had a go on one of our first episodes at doing some latin (laughs) and it's the particular yeast stain that works best in distillation is Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Nice. Um, and we'll come. I'm hoping they'll be able to. Now that I've got that in my head, we'll come back to that at some point. Because there are, as ever, because these are single-celled organisms, and they 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 move around or they propagate at such rapid rates. They're 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 almost in permanent change. There's almost permanent deviation. In, in the process. Uh-huh. You pointed earlier on that the, you pointed out that we're, we're looking for this, uh, for the yeast to convert the sugary wort into alcohol. And how does it do that then? I think this is maybe a, a, a question we can dive into. How does it go about changing that sugary liquid into alcohol? It's feeding on the carbohydrates and the sugar, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was finding out that there was there's three main phrase, three main phases of activity going on within the washback, regardless of whether it's made out of wood or stainless steel. There's, <laughs> and I'm sure we'll come back to that in a wee while. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's aerobic uh, activity, which means it's activity that's taking place in the presence of oxygen. There's anaerobic activity, which means there's there's a lack of oxygen. And then there's bacterial fermentation going on in phase three. So one of the things that you would commonly find out about fermentation processes, if you're looking at a particular distillery, we've all done it, we've all gone, okay, the, the fermentation times seem to be important. And distillery X might have a fermentation protocol that is 50 hours long and another distillery will have a different time maybe longer maybe 120 hours or if you're the thompson brothers up in dornoch i've got some of their new make and it was fermented for 14 days which is 336 hours <laughs> so 
that's that's quite quite a lot of difference in how long you can allow the fermentation process to carry on. So um, in the aerobic phase one, in the presence of oxygen, the yeast is absorbing oxygen that's been dissolved in the wort, just as any liquid might have some oxygen in it. And then as that oxygen within the wort is reduced and CO2, as you said, was, was produced, uh, the yeast then will quickly move on to phase two to the anaerobic uh, activity. And that's when the alcohol is produced, is that? Is that yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Yep. I also picked up that the yeast don't, they move about a lot. They're almost propelled by the, their own excretion of alcohol. Right. So the alcohol is damaging to the yeast as, as well as it, it is to us. So I had this notion of all these wee yeast farting about the washback <laughs> <laughs> on, on a stream of alcohol. Mm-hmm. Hence the reason why, or part of the reason why the wash bubbles up as well as with the carbon dioxide. You've got the actual, the yeast themselves are very active and vigorous in, mm-hmm. that, in that environment and in the themselves. So the, the, the yeast, the yeast cells are, are trying to grow and, and, and reproduce and propagate. And that's what they're, they're, they're looking for energy and food to do that. And the sugars in the wort allow them to just really gorge on the, on the, 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 the glucose and convert that into alcohol and CO2 as a byproduct along with all of those congeners and flavor compounds and that's something that's i don't know is it i think it's talked about a little bit more these days but when when i first started visiting distilleries nobody really talked about the fermentation process being contributing to the flavors it just seemed to be that fermentation is just just about producing the alcohol it's not really the flavor compounds yeah, and I think also, as we picked up when we were talking about barley, there's a, a general received wisdom that the distillation process was where the flavour was produced. Mm. That it was such an aggressive process that nearly nothing can can survive or, or can influence that distillation process. Now, I, I, I think, for me, that's the cart and the horse are the wrong way around there. Mm-hmm. Because... You have to put flavour in to distill it out, so it make it makes a lot more sense to me in terms of the the linear process to get from field to to still. That actually, you need good quality barley, well treated, yeah. made into good quality wort that then has good quality yeast added to it to make the wash. That is going to create a whole range of different flavor possibilities that then are distilled that are concentrated by the distillation process mm-hmm. and made into the highly desirable the desirable flavors within your final spirit that makes much greater sense to me because otherwise you'd be saying you could pour any old rubbish into a still and make good stuff and that 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 doesn't follow either why would we have all of that care taken over many many years you know there's the, the Crag and Moor or something that the owner was scared even to move the cobwebs, you know, <laughs> it, you know it's just it to create the perfect atmosphere. So whilst that's you know, slightly mythologised and romanticised, 
it does make sense that what we're trying to do is maintain a good quality product and process from mm -hmm. the beginning to the end. I, I, don't, I can't see how if you put poor quality into a still, then it can somehow make you know a silk purse out of that sow's ear. Or although we have talked about kind of alchemy, it, it can't make magic out of rubbish. Yeah. Well, I read there was a, somebody was quoted as saying, you can't make good whiskey out of a bad wash. Mm. And that's, that's just it. You have to have all of the prerequisites in place before you go on and distill or mature. And enough to say as well, I think I picked up in visits to distilleries that although now so many are one-person operations, but the position of brewer in actually making the wash for distillation was a was a high profile, high status job. Mm. So it follows from that that there's a skill and a, a whole range of of skills to bring to understanding that process of of getting from wort, adding yeast uh, into making it mash and then making that sorry, making that wash and then making that wash into proper beer. Mm -hmm. Well, not not just the skills, but the responsibility as well, because yeah. it's that's just one, you know, that's one guy who is responsible for a huge chunk of what's eventually going to come out at the end, and that's the, the distiller has to work with what he's given by the brewer, I suppose, and and the blender at the end of the day is going to be working with the the results of all of their efforts. So I was always kind of stuck in asking questions right so why why would different distilleries have different fermentation protocols and have different fermentation lengths i suppose that one of the answers is almost self-evident in that it would produce a different flavor wash at the end of the day yeah but it's only by poking into it a little bit further and and scratching the surface and um finding out that by and large, after only 48 hours, all of the sugar's been utilised yeah. in the wort. So if you're if you're fermenting for more than 48 hours, then what's going on after that? Why ferment for 120 hours or 336 I, hours? I think you're going to tell me. <laughs> I don't know if I've got any hugely insightful answers other than there's there's stuff going on it's not just about using the sugar it's after that happens there's there's more chemical processes taking place so it's not just about yes the yeast will take the sugar and convert it to alcohol ethanol in this case but that then that kind of alcoholic soup is still seething with activity on a kind of chemical level well <clears throat> in, in that third phase then you move you don't move you go away then from anaerobic fermentation to much more about as a bacterial fermentation that the yeast cells begin to break down the, there are some bacteria in the malted barley and also as i'm sure we'll come back to there are claims to a, a bacterial culture within wooden washbacks that then begins to act on the wash. Now, the, the wash in and of itself has still got its own trace elements, you know, nitrogen, some sulfur materials, there are nutrients, vitamins, all coming from the barley. But 
that then once you've got past that 36 to 48 hour period there's this different process the third phase in terms of uh, the bacteria acting on the wash and, uh, and that again can change those elements within the wash and also begins to uh, and can change the pH levels in the wash mm-hmm. it's, uh, there's always a diff- there's a, an additional process going on that's acting on the flavour compounds that have already been created in the, in the original fermentation and picking up on that and myself Stuart, and I, I was quite intrigued about these different lengths of fermentation and again looking at it a wee bit more you think well you can see that in more modern distillers you moved to much m- much more often to seven day fermentations or seven day a week working mm-hmm. so that's going to maybe reduce the opportunities for seven day fermentation or you know for longer fermentations where you know, the workforce finishes on Tuesday afternoon and the fermentation goes on over, over the weekend to be picked up at some point on the Monday. I could see why there would be a concentration then towards the lower end of fermentations. But also looking that a wee bit further, that you're not talking apples and apples there because it's likely possible that that longer fermentation would be, the temperature would be controlled in it, either within by cooling it down by a cooling mechanism within the washback itself or by controlling the environment that would mean that that fermentation would be slower over the weekend so that again you wouldn't get because once you go so far into the that bacterial fermentation there are added sulfurs and things like that that people are trying to avoid at all costs and mm-hmm. um, I, I was just intrigued that is again a part of that the complexity of work here it's not all just straight numbers. Okay, this week, you know, for four days, we'll do 56 hours, and then over the weekend, we'll do 110. That process isn't the same. You know, the, and again, maybe going back to those high-level skills and respect due to the brewer, that that whole process is manipulated and controlled in a very carefully balanced way to make sure that that wash comes out in a, in a high quality and desirable desirable to the, the, the distiller um, in, in a desirable way. Well, they, they'll be looking for consistency as well. Yeah. I, I, I think it, there's each batch. Yeah, each and batch I, I, I think there's, a, there's this kind of two, uh, two sides, you know, for some that would be absolutely clear they, they, they would very much like high volume consistency of flavour. Conversely, I think there are other distilleries that are more that embrace perhaps more variation a slightly more batch process um, but again it depends on each individual, individual distillery and, and I, I, I think you can see for those that are looking for higher volumes consistency we'll be looking for a particular spirit at the end of the day that's probably selling in high volume so it, from a marketing perspective has to be consistent yeah but conversely others where if you like they're, they're perhaps perhaps more niche and their consumers are more open to differences across across a particular group of whiskies that are produced so it and we might find out as well that further on down the line the the, the blender's art is able to balance out some of the inconsistencies that might yes pop up in the in in, in, in fer- fermentations but just when we're talking about the 
efficiency and consistency, my eye was drawn to what was happening pre, I don't know, when would it be, pre-70s and 80s with distilleries mostly using brewer's yeast as opposed to what's known these days as distiller's yeast. Mm-hmm. And I've heard some people talking about the demise of the use of brewer's yeast having a, an adverse effect on the um, complexity and the and the flavours found in Scotch whiskies then compared with now. Mm-hmm. So I was I was kind of trying to do a little bit of digging on that, and it just seems to be that at the time, early mid seventies, the distillers were looking for more consistency, as we were saying, we we're talking about consistency and efficiency, and brewers' yeast wasn't giving them the desired levels of of efficiency, so it was effectively phased out, and distiller uh, brewers' yeast was no longer available to distillers after well let's say the mid 70s i might be wrong there but what was what was the flip side of that what you gain in efficiency and and uh, yields it's argued that you might lose some flavors because brewers yeasts would quite often leave there would be a, a kind of sh- a residue of unfermented sugars and some other chemical components and esters that would be left in the wash that you wouldn't get with the higher efficiency distilleries so yeah um, i think you're exactly right there and there's a there was a hint in and what we were talking about in terms of anaerobic fermentation that that's not the ideal environment for yeast they would much prefer or, or to thrive in an oxygen rich environment so there's a a step or a hint there that it's actually in the inconsistencies or in the the, the impoverished environment that is where the the flavours arrive. I picked up that, yeah, distillers yeast might be more efficient and there's a greater conversion into alcohol and it's probably a little bit faster. Mm-hmm. And it certainly seems to um, ferment at a higher temperature. But like you say, something about brewer's yeast produces more of those flavour congeners and perhaps this driving that my own argument is it is that inefficiency as to where those those flavors lie mm-hmm. and, and and similarly in terms of a longer fermentation once you get into the bacterial bit that's there are there seem to be the longer you go on the greater the opportunity to create and the kind of fruity esters and citrusy flavors or more like the grass and hay aldehydes and I think I picked up that others are suggesting that a brewer's yeast does pr- produce a fruitier, a, a fruitier distillate. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the one of the books I was diving into was describing it as not so much that brewer's yeast was no longer sought by distillers; they were painting it in terms of there was less brewer's yeast available because of the right. decline of the Scottish brewing tradition. Right. And the, with the decline of the breweries, there's there's obviously going to be less and less brewer's mm. yeast available. But I then kind of was thinking, well, maybe now, because, because you're, you're still allowed to use brewer's yeast, uh-huh. and what you might find is some distillers will 
use distiller's yeast and augment it and blend it with brewer's yeast because obviously they, they understand that it's, got, it's giving you something extra. It's giving you, it's giving you some more flavours. So now that in the past 10, 15 years, we can see there's a, an upsurge and a resurgence in, uh, in craft brewing, then alongside the, the resurgence and the um, increase in the amount of distilleries that we're seeing come online, we might then find that there's it's, it's more commonplace that you that distillers are, are are using brewer's yeast. We might find that that's becomes uh, much more yeah commonplace. So yeah, uh, be interesting to see. Wee, yeah, brewer's yeast also a wee bit cheaper as well. So ah, okay. And um, also here, here's I, I picked up one for the for the conspiracy theorists as I'm as I'm want to do in the process. I haven't been able to find this in any other source, but it was suggesting that the the SWA rules for the best part of 50 years, in fact, over 50 years, up to 2003, were that you were required to use distiller's yeast as a distiller. Now, I, 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 in terms of just your, your kind of hearsay knowledge, I, I'm not sure I understand that because it's, you know, brewer's yeast is, seems still quite readily available but however that that's that's what it says and of course as we know the SWA is very heavily influenced by what would have been DCL at the time yeah. you know, and has subsequently become Diageo I've, but I've the just... East strain to be used was DCLM well I was before we go any further <clears throat> I thought you were going to say there as we know D, uh, uh, SWA is heavily I thought you were going to say litigious <laughs> so um I was just gonna urge caution. <laughs> well I mean I need to go back to my source on that one. I should have I should have, have this in brackets, shouldn't I? So, Allegedly, yeah, yeah. Uh, but of course now there are many more um organizations out there making uh making yeast. There's a, a group called Kerry that run out of Menstry, but they, they started in Ireland. Lelemon, who are in Felixstowe, and a name that kept coming up against in, in terms of what distillers were using was Maori yeast, and that is AB Maori themselves that are, uh -huh. are the producers of that in Northampton. And again, th these these seem quite refined scientific organisations about constantly trying to press, looking for consistency of flavour, tolerance of temperature, mm -hmm. increasing the you know, like trying to get the fermentation rate higher so that the, the length of fermentation is short, shorter, that the yeast is tolerating the levels of alcohol that it's, it's able to produce, as, as well as trying to increase, you know, to be more active within the washing itself. So it seems, but I wasn't getting any sense that, other than in terms of consistency, that despite all the research that, that's been possible to push yeast in and of itself beyond its, its kind of its own natural limitations, Mm -hmm. rather than getting as long as you've got a pure kind of good quality yeast that there isn't actually much more you can do with it that to actually survive beyond 37 degrees or to actually be able to tolerate high levels of alcohol and things like that so it, it there's there's quite a tension there in terms of trying to drive scientific research but actually you're doing it on on an, on an organic material that that itself is is producing its own toxin that eventually Kills it. Yeah, well, and just a couple of things are, are kind of tying together there. 
you're talking about um, scientific progress. Uh, I would maybe uh, bracket in their technological process, technological progress, because it was, it was pointed out to me that until the advent of refrigerators in the 1850s, brewers and distillers would have to have worked seasonally because the temperatures, they would work from from September through to May during the winter time. And they had to do that because the yeast was inactive and wouldn't wouldn't uh, would die during the, the higher temperatures of the summer yeah. months. So I'm just thinking about historically the people who, you know, whether it was illicit distillers or, or distillers prior to the 1850s would be, you know, the, the construction of distilleries and the, the, the way that the whole thing was operated would, would be massively changed with the advent of refrigeration, mm. um, which I'd, I hadn't really thought about. And there's that ties in with, do you remember the, the provenance range of bottoms yeah, and they used they to do in the summer distillation. spring distillations and all of that yeah. and i always thought oh, is that just a little bit of marketing guff or we do are we are you just trying to paint yourself to be a little bit more interesting but you know there's i think there's there's some validity in in that yeah i i'd pick up on that too and it's interesting how particular myths or sayings or expectations they kind of become embedded mm-hmm. and sometimes utilized in terms of marketing um because there there is a kind of sense of a, a legend a historical legend at least that winter production was better and you can understand that in terms of the context of controlling the volatility within the yeast because in the summer months that's not going to be possible mm-hmm. but there's something actually far more practical at hand i think is that you have to grow the barley first so you've got to wait the length of the summer. Now, that, that's, a, that's the simple truth of it, isn't it? You have yeah. to have the barley yeah. to make your mash and your wash. And then, but then there was another another wee bit of a romantic myth of the happy cows that are feeding on the byproducts. Well, actually, if you're a farmer and you're distilling and you've got the byproduct, you, you are, as a process of making your whiskey and having this high-protein byproduct, making cattle feed. For the winter. Yeah. So whilst there are myths, legends, marketing and all that, uh-huh. paraphernalia, there is also something of a kind of practical reality there, which I quite like because I think the best myths myths and lies are all based on a wee bit of truth. And there seems to be just like a truth there in the cycle of farming life where you're working hard through the summer in terms of producing crops and fattening your animals and um, to the point where when it comes to the winter time, you're going to be less active, but then you'd be making the, the whiskey. And yeah. lo and behold, you're making food or feed for the animals that you've got left behind. You know? mm-hmm. Great. How we unpick that, how we can be certain that a winter distillation is better than a summer distillation, I don't know. But I'm just, just covering my own words here because there's, also in the middle of all this was a discussion around slow and fast fermentations. Okay. So if I'm right in thinking, the slower your fermentation, or if you have a slow fermentation, you're more likely to have a, a half decent wash at the end of it. Faster distillation 
tends to be a little bit more aggressive and produce the kind of flavors that, that you don't really want. So would that be, would the slow or the fast fermentation be dependent on the temperature? Temperature, yeah. So if you, if you keep the, chem, the, keep the temperature down, the yeast is not going to be as active and it's going to take longer. It's going to be a more relaxed fermentation. Yeah, hence when you're talking about, you know, although we talked about long fermentations, those would tend, I imagine, those would be at lower temperatures right. again, so that you're not overworking the wash. So uh, slow stuff tends to be around, you know, produce, a, you know, a clearer wash. It's, you know, it's got a lighter, fine spirit, whereas faster would tend to be more milky, more cloudy. Uh, slightly, probably slightly lower strength in terms of alcohol, but have more of the pungent, spicy flavours. And I can only imagine that that's because, again, we're talking about inefficiencies in the process. Mm-hmm. So you tend them to have more bits and pieces left in the latter process, as opposed to a slow, more deliberate process that allows the yeast to do all of its work. So um, that that bit is pure assumption on my part. You know, I I don't know the chemistry of it. I'm just well, guessing. I wonder if we could put our heads together and guess a little bit more about. I I saw a a comment. It wasn't kind of explained or 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 or, or um, taken apart in any way. And the comment is that short fermentations equals more wash. You end up with a higher volume of wash at the end of a short fermentation. So um, I've got a big, I've got that written down. I've got a big question mark mm. next to it because I'm thinking, okay, what, what is it that, what's going on there? If it's a short fermentation, we would maybe we'd be thinking, okay, it's a higher temperature. The yeast is is been highly active. So why would you end up with a larger volume of wash? Mm. We've entered the matrix there, Stuart. Um, now, I don't. I don't know how much more wash. Yeah. I don't know what 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 percentages you're talking. Of whether you get, if you do a short fermentation, you end up with two percent more wash or twenty percent more wash. I'm, I'm... Would there be that much issue around evaporation? It's, not, it's warm, but it's not. It's not boiling. So, I don't know. Is it? Is it to do with what? What is the yeast taken out of the what? And if it's if it's a short fermentation, it's not got time to convert a lot of the sugars to alcohol to alcohol and CO2. So, but that would then suggest you would have a lower volume because it'd be more water. I don't mean volume ABV. I mean volume as in just uh-huh. liters. Yeah. And you I don't, don't know, know how that, don't know how it's made up in terms of percentage of alcohol to water or. The, the, the kind of debris that's left behind in terms of the yeast or approximately 85% of the solids are converted to alcohol so the solids, the solids the sugar, being the sugars yeah. hey big question I, I, I'm like I find this so overly so complicated that you're beginning to put two or three factors up against two or three others and it becomes quite hard to, to, to pick it out well, I was, I was reading stuff and questions were popping up like that. And then mm. I would think, okay, well, I just need to keep on reading. I'll get to the answer. And then as, <laughs> as I read more, there was more questions popping up in my head. And I forgot the first one. 
Um, yeah, you read on hoping that you'll... Um, it'll all become clear. It'll make, make clear when actually it just becomes more opaque. So, as the, as the, as the yeast is eating all the sugar, it's producing ethanol, uh, and it becomes less active. I, I came across, I came across a term for to that describes when the when the yeast cells start to clump together, and they fall to the bottom of the vessel uh, when the fermentation or when phase two of the fermentation is finished. That's uh, called flocculation. Ooh. So that was a new one on me, um, and that's that's one of the kind of key characteristics I think that the brewer will be looking for. Um, one of the key characteristics from the yeast, uh, amongst the the amount of alcohol potentially produced, uh, the sugar levels, temperature and pH tolerance. So different yeast strains might act differently, different temperatures and different pH levels. Um, and then the viability during storage as well, because it needs to be transported. So does the transportation and storage affect the, the viability of the of the of that particular yeast? The fermentation velocity, the lag. I was reading about the um when they first put the pitch the yeast in, there might be a period where it doesn't instant you know, it doesn't immediately start mm. to um ferment. So that'll have a an effect on the the distillery's calculations along their timeline. How long is there a is there a big lag for do they have to wait an hour? Do they have to wait three hours before it starts to really get going? Um, I quite like that that term pitching as mm. well because it, it, it seemed to cover quite a broad range of meaning. You know that there is certainly if it's yeast cake or dried yeast, there is the physical act of of throwing in the yeast, mm -hmm. but also pitch is some is more about understanding the process of under knowing when knowing what temperature you're 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 putting your yeast in so it seemed to add a little bit more complexity to the process rather than just and also how the bag and chucking it in also how much yeah because that's that's going to have a an effect isn't it not enough yeast going in or too much yeast going in yeah, and um, you were mentioning about technology as well because it that's picking up that we can get yeast in three types, and you get creamed yeast, which is you know, it's got a high liquid level. I think it's it's maybe about as much as eighty five percent liquid, but and that that has to be used really fresh. But by by using it in such a way, you need special kit within your distillery. But by using it in such a way, then that your your wort is coming off out of the mash tun and into the wash back, and you can actually introduce the yeast in that process itself so you're not exposing the yeast into the atmosphere to possible right. bacterial infection or anything like that. but so it it can go straight into the wash back with the wort making 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 the wash there and then mm -hmm. the other ones the the other dry yeast and the, the cake or the paste as i understand it are more pitched in they're more thrown in so it's another little bit of technological advance again for distillers to be more concerned about this a bit terms in terms of protecting against infection of, of, of the wash. Just with regards to the pitching, I was reading about that some strains 
might require what what's called liquid reactivation. For example, if, it, if it's a dried yeast before it's pitched into the washback, it may need to be reactivated in some way. Um, and apparently that's called bubbing or livening the yeast. Uh, but I couldn't find anything more about how that process takes place you know what what liquid reactivation actually means in in real terms but when you're talking about the bacterial contamination if you're the wild yeasts i mean the yeasts are everywhere they're not just made in factories wild yeasts are everywhere on fruit and flora and fauna so everywhere you go there's uh, there's yeasts floating about and you obviously want to make sure that you're not allowing wild yeast to contaminate. Well, some I, I've been reading that some places actually will encourage wild yeasts to be part of the process. And some places will obviously try and minimise the amount of wild yeast that kind of impinges on the, the process in the distillery. But I was reading about killer strains, killer mm. yeasts. So there's... There's some yeasts that have a genetic strain that will kill other yeasts. So if you get any of them in your wash back, you're you know you could be into big trouble because you, yeah. you just won't you won't get your fermentation happening at all. So yeah, I think there's there's plenty to plenty to think about if you're um if you're involved in brewing. Um, yeah, and I think not just individual strains of yeast. Although, although I, in all, in all honesty, I once I started down that road. It didn't seem that there were great differences between the particular yeasts that were being used. Mm -hmm. Some distillers were still going for brewer's yeast, others less so, but there, there weren't that many great differences in terms of, you, you're maybe only talking about six or seven yeasts being used in terms of distillers, but then what the difference was then is about how if people might add that to brewer's yeast. There were some outliers there that weren't always 100% in terms of using particular yeasts. And I think, given that things have changed again, like you're picking up on the, the increase in terms of craft brewing, there's, there's definitely possibilities there for access to brewer's yeast. In and of that, I think Dornoff Distillery and the, the Thompsons Brothers were very definitely, could be seen as one of the outliers in terms of how they've embraced brewer's yeast. I was picking up what they said they they've never had distillers yeast on site. Right. Um and a suggestion that Ben Romack still only uses brewers yeast and that Ben Nevis does a mixture of 50-50. Whether that's still the case, some of some of the publications, you know, like um Mystical Udo's book that I think the most recent version of that is 2006, so it, it is a good time ago. Yeah. But she she's someone who went to such depths of research, I think. In terms of understanding what particular distillers were using. But of course, with that, with the new development in terms of craft distillation, there's a much broader opportunities. And I think I picked up that Razi had also experimented with champagne yeast. Mm. So and I don't think wine yeast is is that far away in terms of its its classification. So we had the Saccharomyces cerevisiae mm -hmm. and wine yeast is Saccharomyces bianus, I think. So I'm, I'm assuming that's the same yeast that's used. That, that was a kind of general term I was picking up in wine, but 
Um, I'm assuming that's the same type of yeast that would be used in champagne. And all I'd also had picked up that Glenn Mongey had experimented with wild yeast. Now, and they they made uh, they had a bottle in a few years ago of, of Alta A L L T A. Now, I, I picked that up quite quite early on when I was doing the reading here, and, but gradually as time went on, grad, um, picked up that it maybe wasn't as as random as filling up the washback and opening doors and seeing what happened. Now, I, I was over romanticising that. I picked up that actually what they although there were there was barley or crops grown close to the distillery, they picked up that were maybe of the wild yeasts that they could see there or, or detect there, they they picked four and had them very seriously analysed by one of the yeast makers, Lollalond, I think, or I, I forgot their name, the Lallemond. Um, and then from that decided to use that particular yeast. So it, it's a it's a lot more of an organised process to boost the outcome. But it still shows quite a significant degree of, of experimentation. And I think there were quite some quite significant differences in the wash that was produced that it was much um, less floral, I think. I, I would need to go and just have a wee look at that. But uh, there, were, there were definite differences in the wash and how it, it, it manifests itself. You can see the, the, the innovations are... are, are a big word that gets used quite a lot in conversations with whiskey these days. There's everyone's looking for, you know, what's the next innovation, and there's lots of chat about what is innovative and what isn't innovative. But you can see a lot of, like you're saying, a lot of di different distilleries using different yeasts and and looking to make themselves stand out a little bit. I know Glen Moray used. Uh, no, it was um, Loch Lomond were using a Chardonnay yeast. And you mentioned yeah. the champagne yeast as well. I was, I was, I was reading there's a Glenfiddicher bringing out a Grand Cru. <laughs> At, what age is it? It's double figures at 18 or 20 years old. And they obviously can't mention on the bottle anywhere that it's champagne yeast because you can't put champagne, you can't uh -huh. put the word champagne on your bottle. Otherwise, you'll have the champagne growers and producers will be up in arms and will be protesting that you're trading off their esteemed name. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, uh, rather than calling it Glenfiddich Champagne Yeast, they're calling it Glenfiddich Grand Cru. We're, we're getting to the stage where now where we're thinking about, okay, you've got, you're getting your ethanol coming out as the, the, the primary sought after byproduct of the the whole fermentation process the yeast is is pumping out ethanol but in addition to that we know it's not just the alcoholic yield we're looking for there's all of the the um the fermentation fermentation congeners that have been mm -hmm. produced as well um arguably you know almost as important as the as the production of alcohol and going going back to where glenn Monge fitted in picked up and got back to what I was picking up is that they're usually their new make is floral with a lot of fruits and cereal and strawberries of all of all things but the outer wash the floral element was 
much higher than usual. The fruit much lower, but the grass and the cereal elements much higher. And so also one of the logics for the Dornoff brother or the Dornoff distillery and the Thompson brothers doing those extra long fermentations, if I remember rightly, was to introduce they were great lovers of very old Springbank from the sixties that they and they got a lot of strawberry and raspberry notes in. And they say that part of their long term fermentation as an attempt from their understanding of the chemical processes will 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 bring about those similar kind of flavour profiles. So with the um with the glimmerangie yeast experiments, if there's such a difference in the, the flavours that are coming through, I wonder were they using the same barley strain? Mm. You know, were all things equal apart from the, the, the yeast that they were using? That that would be interesting to find out. But I don't know okay. if, if it's possible mm. to to find that out, no, and none, none of that jumped out when it, you know, when I, when I came across it about what what other variables there might be. Mm-hmm. But as we know, <laughs> one variable at one point may have a different influence than what a variable at another point in the process. Ah. So, the, the, with the congeners that are that are coming off, um, so I think it's worthwhile digging into them a wee bit because they are they can be the largest group of kind of aroma compounds that are likely to be found in your whiskey at the. At the, when it's in your glass, all of these flavour compounds that are produced. So I've got I've got them listed here as the higher alcohols, sometimes known as the fusel oils, mm-hmm. esters, acids, aldehydes. You were mentioning ketones and sulphur compounds. So that the the higher alcohols are produced by the yeast when it's when it's reacting with amino acids and carbohydrates that are in the in the wort at low levels let's see what we're in higher yeast growth so if the if the yeast is being very uh, productive and, and it's growing when it's eating all the oxygen eating all the sugars and if it's growing fast that produces more higher alcohols somebody there was a wee quote i was going to read out earlier on so higher temperatures can result in a coarse in coarse acids and alcohols and aldehydes that will give harshness to the final whiskey. So if you're if you're going for your fast fermentations, I suppose with the high temperatures, you're going to produce more higher alcohols. And at, at low levels, they can be f- quite fruity and pleasant. But then at, at higher at higher temperatures, at higher levels, um, they can be quite unpleasant. Then we've got the the esters, fruity and flowery aromas. There might be up to ninety different types of esters, and one of the one of the things that was quite surprising was the chemical. There's some chemical reactions between ethanol and some of the acids that form esters, but some of these can take place during maturation, not just in the wash bath. Oh. So there's a a point to make that. It's not only the wood that's making a contribution to the flavour mm-hmm. profile during the during the aging process; it can still be the chemical reactions resulting from the fermentation process that that are still going on, which I was quite surprised about. Yeah, so that, so again, here we are. We're still we're deep into the process, but we're not near, nowhere near the end. Nothing's got out into our cask yet, but we're still setting up potentials for possibilities and cha- flavour changes 
some years down the line once mm-hmm. once these wonders get into a cast. And again, not because of the interaction with the wood, but of the interaction of the chemical compounds within the distillate in, in itself. Now, I, I don't know. I wonder oh. it's, what I read was that these reactions between ethanol and the acids to form esters, they can take place during maturation, but that implies that it has to be an oak. Mm. So I don't know if you if you took your wash and distilled it and didn't put it in oak, would <laughs> these would the ethanol and the acids still react to produce esters? I don't know. Well maybe the there must be chemical processes going on by virtue of the fact that oak is porous and there's some kind of interaction, isn't there? So perhaps with the oxygen that that interaction that that then is is a catalyst for mm-hmm. those changes ah. but it's still it's still not anything to do with the chemical compounds in the wood we're talking about it's much more about what that maturation process so you could conceivably have you know, i don't know very old it, it wouldn't rely on very good wood it, would, it just relies on the porous nature of the wood itself yeah. possibly yeah yeah so that's, i'm trying to argue myself out of saying you have <laughs> to have a fancy cask that's actually as long as you've got that that possibility. I'm, you know, neither of us are chemists, Stuart, so we're we're, we're kind of winging this. But <laughs> well, like, okay, I'll take it back three or four steps and leave it a bit. I think I can understand is that you're setting up potential chemical reactions now by virtue of what you make in the wash, the fermentation process that may or may not not be realised years later. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so again, it goes back to you still need good quality beer to, to be able to distill. Well, just just on that point, with flavour characteristics and aroma compounds being apparent or or not apparent immediately, or only coming to be noticed some years down the line, one of the other congeners that is produced, we've got what have we got? We've got the, the higher alcohols, we've got the esters. We've got acids and fatty acids, and we've got sulfur compounds as well. Now, while most of these are will be neutralised through the distillation process and the contact with the copper, some of the remaining sulfur compounds might be reduced while in cask. So you might find that the the cask plays this part in reducing those flavour and reducing those sulfur compounds, but other sulfurous compounds will still remain or new ones will be formed during the maturation process so it's all reactions happening all the way down the line and obviously the sulfur ones you want to watch out for because they've got a very low taste threshold yeah and you they, they, they could really spoil a, a batch of, of your whiskey if you're if they become too prominent so we've talked a bit about how different distilleries are doing it in different ways of different lengths of fermentations uh, we've not really talked too much about the stainless steel versus wooden washbacks the, the, only, thing that, ask. <laughs> the only thing i could really ascertain there was that nobody's ever going to change because it might just as much as the the stainless steel guys will say yeah it's easier to clean it doesn't it doesn't impart any flavors really we're not bothered about it it's hygienic it's uh efficient and it's consistent and the wooden washback 
proponents will say it adds a level of something to the resultant wash. Nobody's ever going to change because they're. It might, or it might not change the the flavour well, profile of your final whiskey. But are you willing to take that risk? I think you're onto something because that one one distillery stood out as having made the change to stainless steel, uh, and that's Bumore, and they they went back to wood. When did they do that? Um, I didn't have the dates on it, that was, right. but it was in in the mid, middle of that discussion. They they had made the change, and you can see it's an attractive option to look to make your uh-huh. you know, your production processes as clean and and uh, sterile. I I see that as being attractive, even though I'm not necessarily seeing it as attractive to myself. But they they had they had made the change and then they've gone back to they've gone back to wooden washbacks. Right. Now I need to go in now and dig out my ancient books <laughs> that tell me where the when the stainless steel went out when it came in. See, that would be an interesting little topic for uh, if you could trace some bottles from that were definitely fermented in steel, and then mm-hmm. kind of bottles that were subsequently in the or in the old wooden washbacks before they changed, or they must they, they must have been able to taste the difference if they changed and then changed yeah. back. They must have noticed there was a there was well, a difference. We're getting into the realm, the realm of worm tubs, aren't they? But <laughs> yeah, um, I have to confess when I when I thought when we were talking about this, I thought, oh, this will this will be that washbacks argument. I've I've got this squished. I know exactly. <laughs> and but it, and it was all over in a bit of a flash, really, because like you've picked up the arguments for and against were split right down the middle, and what people liked about wood is the very thing that the people about that didn't like who, who used stainless steel in terms yeah. of how easy it is to clean that wood might have its own bacterial bacteriological environment going on anyway but for those who use it they say that's that's one of its advantages there was one outlier i could remember from memory in that uh, good old glen scotia i've got a cotton steel uh, washback but i'm not sure if that adds or doesn't add to flavor it seemed that wooden washbacks are good temperature insulators. And that was quite attractive from the thought of, well, you can imagine your your warm wash coming through and into a cold steel environment. That might be some sort of, I don't know, molecular shock or something, mm-hmm. if, if such a thing exists. I did not know that your wooden ones could, oh, spring back the Swedish boat skin larch, I think, that you can get, Douglas fir or... Oregon pines, another popular wood again, because they're able to be long; they're not knotted. And but even in uh, a had had there, you would expect normally a forty-year life cycle on a life term on on wooden washbacks, but Cokerans wore out really quickly. They they replaced their washbacks last year. They become very rotten down at the bottom. And, and, not really sure. Nobody was really sure why, like whether it was a defect in production or whether it's just a consequence because they've got to stop start production over the course of the year, so they wouldn't be in in constant use. But other, I mean, imagine they would have been filled with water while they weren't in use. But um, just that's one of those wee nickels for them that haven't expected a a forty year lifespan. That that's not what yeah what 
transpired. And also, I, I quite liked along the way, you know, because of that very violent process, of, you know, and you'll have been in the distillery yourself and seen the froth come up. And most, I, I can't remember being in a distillery that hasn't had a lid on the washbacks. And some have got those switchers, you know, the metal blade that goes around to contain yep. the, the froth. But I, I picked up on someone that <coughs> was actually quoting Charlie McLean, who was saying that uh, in the past, we boys had the job of uh, beating down the froth with their with their heather brushes. Yeah. Uh, I thought, oh, that's an awful dangerous job for a wee boy. But then I was thinking, well, the, I'm thinking that these are 30,000 litre washbacks. When actually, if you think of it historic, historically, nobody really had a distillery that size. Yeah. Quite often, the wash would have been made in maybe in, in what we recognise as casks in terms of size. Yeah. So that, that, that seems much more manageable for a wee boy with his, his heather switcher to knock off the foam. But just when, um, when, when you're talking about those switchers and the, the, the so the foam's rising up and they, they don't want it to spill over. There's a an alternative that's sometimes used rather than the metal switchers. I heard that some some distilleries use soap. Yeah. A couple of some yeah. soap flakes into the wash back and that kills the that kills the, the froth. Yeah. The so, emergency anti foamer. And it is I've I think actually on that same trip to Kilkenan I did see some emergency anti-foma and it was no more sophisticated than a cheese grater <laughs> and a bar. And a bar of you know, whether, whether, whether it was special soap or not, yeah. we didn't say. Well, they didn't say. And I have to say I was slightly shocked at the, at the sight of emergency anti-foma in, in Kilkerran. But, yeah, so it, it does happen. Is that going to... Is that gonna... Come into play in your in the flavour of the. Uh, uh, that was, I was slightly that, that was the reason why I was slightly horrified because I, I have tasted soap and whiskey before and thought, right. really, is that where right. it comes? But I, I, apparently yeah. that that's a different set of chemical compounds. So apparently Aye. not, and apparently it's like two or three strands is enough. You're looking at a, a, a couple of grams of soap could do okay. the work. Right. So, yeah, the horror, yeah. <laughs> Oh, one other thing though, when we were talking about the cleaning, I can remember, I think it was a visit in Brookladdy actually, because they, they've still got wooden washbacks, and you know, over, over a number of years, and I'm talking about how labour intensive the cleaning was, and it, at that point, certainly early on, that would have been in the 90s, I think, mm -hmm. they were talking about cleaning out, cleaning the wood again with those um, kind of heathery brooms. But it has been, but what can happen is because the carbon dioxide is heavier than air, it can gather at the bottom of the washbacks. So actually that cleaning process is quite a can become dangerous. Yeah. If, if because, the, and there have been deaths due to uh, carbon dioxide poisoning. Oh, nice. And it's, um, it's tasteless as well, isn't it? Odorless anyway. And... Mm. So have you got any more nuggets, Stuart? I've got another chapter of this book I need to read. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get around to We need to do yeast part two. What I was just struck by was how, like, like, 
like we were mentioning, like putting one thing in now and the matrix down the line. So you've not look all these things that influence flavor and these factors all interact with one another. Yeah. So it's 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 a deeply maze-like complication. So you've got you know, your yeast in and of itself, and you know, can cover the wee bit that people have managed to have branched out. They've gone beyond distillers yeast, brewers yeast, maybe even champagne or wine yeast. You've got the temperature that that you add that yeast, and the lower lower the temperature of the actual fermentation, the higher the con- congeners are going to be. That's also going to affect the acid, the pH or the acid levels in your wash. And that in its t- in turn will affect the congeners that appear, as does the level of oxygen, as does the level of carbon dioxide, as does the level of bacteria, both in the barley and in the wood of the wooden washbacks, if you're using wooden washbacks. And I think at that point, I could feel my head getting a bit swollen <laughs> slower. And really, I, and I think part, as I mentioned at the outset, undone in my own conceit that this is going to be the easiest thing to yeah. follow. Once we've done washbacks, could sit back and have a dram. But it's just not the case. And it's that's conversely borne out when it, whenever you visit a distillery because they go, ah, there's your mash tun and there's the washbacks and it's from, oh, look at that, it's frothing away. Right, everybody into the still house. Yeah. And they yeah. rush, rush past it. You might be lucky yeah, most, to get a, to get a wee taste. I have, I have had a taste of, of the brew. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's still not that uncommon. Uh, I've had a taste of the brew, I think, and certainly an awkward caution. And there's, there's no mean trick of stick your head in, breathe in the carbon dioxide and lose your glasses. Uh, <laughs> you're supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, what can you say? It, it, it's lovely that having having thought it was straightforward, lo and behold, despite the lessons of the three previous bits of reading, clearly taking a long time here to sink in. And I, I think if we wanted to dig further and, and, and scratch away at the at, at what we've what we've been looking at, I think there's a, a good chance we could go even further. I mean I was I need to just name check this book that I'm that I'm reading um, because if anybody want, is 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 listening and they they want to they want to fill their heads with absolutely everything you need to know, whiskey technology production and marketing by Ing Russell and Graham Stewart, edited by them for the International Centre of Brewing and Distillery at Harriet Watt. I first came across it in, in, in a distillery when I was asking questions. And the, the, the tour guide that was taking me around went, uh, I don't know, I'll be back in a minute. <laughs> and he went through <laughs> the back. And I could see him talking to the distillery manager, I think, going, this guy was <laughs> asking these questions. And he went, give him this book to have a look at. And it was this particular book. So I'll just name check it again. Whiskey, Technology, Production and Marketing, edited by Ing, I-N-G-E, Ing Russell and Graham Stewart. Uh, it's it's got more information in it than I think that will fit in my brain. It's just, it's astonishing. So much so that I think I read so much about whiskey, uh, yeast 
that I just couldn't take any more in. Uh, I had to stop. <laughs> I think you summed it up pretty well there. Uh, all the the activities that are going on, or the kind of the pertinent information is you know, laid it out pretty well there, Peter. It's uh, very kind of you. Thanks for doing that. Um, it's probably worthwhile then signing off and uh, as we do so just raising our glasses and to uh, to all the, the good men and women who so far have produced the barley harvested it malted it mashed it and now brewed it so uh, here's here's to all the lads and lasses that have made it happen so far yeah cheers cheers and and just for the record this is quite an old ben nevis oh aye so i'm quite sure this was made with 50 50 distillers and <laughs> enjoy cheers cheers <laughs>